Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we are with Anna Quinlan. She's been a journalist for the New York Post, the New York Times. She's the author of more than 20 books, including nine novels. Her 1994 novel, One True Thing, was made into a film starring Meryl Streep, Renee Zellweger, and William Hurt. And she's won this little award called the Pulitzer Prize for her commentary. She really is a legend as an independent force of a writer. But even more than that, she is a thoughtful and wonderful ambassador for the craft of writing. And it's wonderful to be with you today. Thanks for coming on. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Doug. Always happy to talk about books. (laughs) Well, your drink today is a mix of seltzer and simple syrup, lime and basil. So I'm going to get going on that while we begin talking. I can't believe you're actually making this. I mean, it's pretty impressive, especially considering that it's not really a cocktail. It's a mocktail. Well, is there a name for this? No, I think it has a name, but the name includes vodka and we're not including vodka. So, well, we can maybe we can claim naming rights then. We'll have to come up with something by the end of the show. I can actually get it going. I'm struggling with the lime. Yeah, we got to get somebody in here to, to open up the fake lime bottle. Right. <laughs> um, so I wanted to start with your childhood, which has been the inspiration for books and, and for film. Um, you were born in Philadelphia mm-hmm. and Irish dad, Italian mother, which is the same combination as my wife. So I know firsthand this is a fiery combo. Um, I assume books and reading were a priority in your childhood household? You know, not so much in my childhood household. My parents had a very good friend, and I always feel like I should name check her um, because she was really influential in my life, named Gert Laferno. And she was what seemed to me in my neighborhood growing up that impossible thing. Oh my God, sorry. Seltzer all over the place. It's okay, seltzer's everywhere. She was an only child. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood in which I was one of five, and that was kind of a medium-sized family. There were a lot of eights and nines. And Gert Laferno had in her basement shelves and shelves of books. Girl of the Limber Lost, which nobody reads anymore. The Secret Garden. Um, Heidi. 
on and on and on. And she used to let me borrow books. Thank you for the drink. That's she used to let me borrow I'm books sorry. if I was very careful with them, which was a very good education for me as well, that one should always take good care of books. And I became a really inveterate reader at a young age. I mean, I, I for as long as I can remember, I'm one of those people who finishes a book and within about 15 minutes starts the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly... I think that's how you learn to write. I mean, you learn you learn to write by looking at what other people are doing and saying, "Yeah, that that kind of works." That's in all of these interviews that I've been having for this show. I would say there are two common traits in almost every writer. One is coffee, and the other is everyone reads a lot. Coffee is definitely a big part of my mo. I must say, although the older I've gotten. The more caffeine bothers me, and I have to sort of cut myself off, and that really ticks is me off. Is tea a downshift that works? Or, or no, I, no? I, I laugh in the face of tea. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I need a heavy-duty caffeine no. delivery system, but I can't have it after about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 3 o'clock in the morning. I'll be staring at the ceiling saying, hmm, wonder what I said to Doug Brunt when we talked on that podcast. Well, I was doing research on you and your childhood to get ready to to speak with you today. And one of the things I was trying to do was separate fact from the fiction that was inspired by the facts. And so I actually had the joy of watching One True Thing over the weekend with my wife as as part of my homework. It's a wonderful movie, isn't it? So good. It's so good. So good. We were both, you know, teary at the end and it's just so well done. It's wonderful for you, I'm sure, as a writer to feel that your book was so well done in film not everybody feels that way absolutely and the other thing is i mean i'm very keenly aware of the fact that putting together a book putting together a novel and putting together a film are two possibly related but separate art forms and so there's a lot in that movie um that's owed to the screenwriter karen croner who did a fantastic job and then of course those great actors and, and a wonderful I, I only director. discovered as you walked in here five minutes ago mm-hmm. that you and Meryl Streep were friends going back long before the movie was We made. were. We were, yeah. It must have been a thrill to work with her on this then. Well, I didn't really work with her because I really feel like um, the essential bad fairy at the christening um, for any movie is the book writer hanging around because everybody's worried that you're saying to yourself, well, that's not the scene as I wrote it. And mm-hmm. I am not that person. From time to time, I would say, wow, that's not the scene as I wrote it, but it's so much more effective that way. So um, I, I just try to stay away. I go, I go once to set and mm-hmm. usually take one or all three of my kids. And I did that with, uh, with, with One True Thing. Well, it was, we, we loved, I love to be able to claim doing that is my homework these days, putting on great movies. I did have a question coming out of the movie though, because in the film, the Renee Zellweger character, which is you. Ellen Golden. She's not me. Uh, not well inspired by comes home in, uh, in her twenties from a job in New York. But I think in real life you were much younger. You were 19 when your mother got sick. Is that I right? I lost my sophomore year in college. Okay. That's what it basically came down to. But, um, Ellen is a much harder, tougher person than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, certainly, to some extent, I share her reflexive 
disdain for her mother's life as a quote-unquote housewife. And her epiphany that her mother amounts to much more than Mm. she thought. I mean, I'm the oldest of five kids. My mother never worked outside the home after um, I was born. And I remember at a certain point um, thinking to myself, and may even have said, which I hope not, thinking to myself, what does she do all day? Mm-hmm. Um, and after a while, especially when I took that year off and was taking care of her, and then after she died, my four younger siblings, um, then I knew what she did all day. The movie, I thought the movie captured that flip in our perspective really well, the complexity of the characters, the, the William Hurt character has these sweet, tender moments bringing the band in for the, the dinner at home when she's too ill to go out to the restaurant. And, and in the end, the mother character might be the strongest person in the film. Uh, of course when, she when is. When you start out thinking she's, the, she's nowhere near that. It's, of course uh, she is. Yeah. Of course she is. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think is embedded in both the novel and the film is that idea that marriage is a mystery. Mm-hmm. And, Ellen is very self-righteous about thinking that she knows terrible things about her father that have been hidden from her mother. And there's that wonderful scene, which is really a tour de force by both Meryl and Renee, where um, uh, Kate Golden says to her daughter, everything you know about your father, I know too and understand better. Mm-hmm. And that actually is as written in the book. <laughs> what One other fact or fiction question I had for you, I read somewhere, this is not in the film, but I read somewhere that your mother toward the end was very ill in bed and you were by the bedside. And she knew, of course, you were determined to be a writer and that you were already down that path. And she said to you, now you will, encouragingly, now you will have something to write about. Is it, that? It's one of the most... Um, distressing moments of my life, um, both because there was that feeling that she was seeing this terrible thing that she was going through as material for me, and the fact that, in fact, that's what it became. I, I mean, I, I, at a certain point, I said to myself, you've just got to stop writing about this. I, I, I know it's a linchpin. It's one of the two linchpins of your life. Um, but you've just got to stop writing about it. And I, I kind of have, but, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, my eldest uh, child, my son Quinn and I, were one day reading an interview that was done with Amy Bloom, the very fine novelist mm-hmm. who was his advisor at college. And um, Amy said, every writer has one subject, and mine is love. And Quinn turned to me and said, well, mom, if every writer has one subject, yours is motherhood. And I was incredibly touched, both that he felt that and that he understood that. But I realized that he was just a little bit off because uh, every writer, in my case, has two subjects and it's motherhood and loss. And I Mm -hmm. think that's to some extent embedded in almost all the novels. That's it. you know, the comment, I, uh, when I read it, I got chills reading it. And, and as you say, you did hear it and you, you did go on to write. I, I was reading it almost as like a, a call to action and a, and a gift to you to like let go of thinking about it. As a, but just 
do it. Just go write. It was almost a call to action to you to write. And I, I apologize to go so artistically lowbrow here, but I got chills in the way uh, that, and here's the artistically lowbrow part, in Rocky, in the scene when Adrian is ill in bed and Rocky has been by the bedside, hasn't slept in days, hasn't eaten in days, he's exhausted and he's concerned and is, he says, is there anything I can do for you? And she says, win. And I get, you know, I love that movie, so I got chills in that movie, but I got chills for this in the same way. It seemed as though she was saying, go, win, and, you know, do this. I, that might be the case, but it wasn't how I perceived it at the time or even afterwards. Mm-hmm. Well, you did go embark on a major career. So by the mid-70s, you are uh, succeeding as a journalist. And by the late 80s, you published your first book, I think, Living Out Loud in 1988. And Object Lessons in 1991 was your fiction debut. And you continued on this track of doing both journalism and books for a period of time. Was that more to pay the bills or was it because you just loved doing both? Well, it was very hard for me to make the decision to leave the newspaper business. I got into the newspaper business to pay the bills. I wanted to be a novelist. I couldn't figure out how you can make a living doing that. So I I had won some awards. Um as the editor of my high school newspaper. And I got a job as a copy girl and then another job as a copy girl and then a summer job as a reporter. And I just loved it. And especially when I was in New York, I mean, being a street reporter in New York is about the best job going, uh, no question about it. So it was really hard for me to decide to leave um to leave the newspaper business. And so once I had in 1995, uh, at the end of my time at the New York Times um, and and then going back um, to write one column every other week on the back page of Newsweek, I sort of kept my hand in and and things would occur to me that didn't fit comfortably into fiction. Some of them were the short books that I that I wrote. Um, sometimes I pulled together collections of columns. I did that three times. And then for example, I, I published a book 10 years ago called Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake, mm-hmm. which is a book about aging because I was becoming increasingly agitated by how everyone made getting older sound like the stations of the cross. And meanwhile, I was saying, I'm still alive. Yay. <laughs> and not only that, but I was encountering a lot of people who deep down in their hearts felt the yay and not the stations of the cross. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book about some of the really wonderful things about living a full life. So that obviously was was going to be a nonfiction book. And then I immediately pivoted back to a novel. Mm-hmm. And you've embraced all these. I, I remember, I think the last time I saw you, Welcome to Nanaville was just out. So mm-hmm. you're, you're embracing all of these uh, different phases. I want to talk about your process a little bit too, because you you, you are... In both of these tracks, you have the sort of regular column beat and then the slightly less regular uh, book writing. How do you how do you structure your day, particularly with when it comes to the writing? Um, well, particularly with fiction, a lot of it takes place during what looks like aerobic exercise or cooking. So I walk four miles every morning. And if I'm not doing that with one of my friends, I'm usually running stuff in my head. I'm thinking about 
a character I'm thinking about. Are you walking with a pad of paper or something no, where you can no, jot but it down? Occasionally when I get back home, I have to hit the computer really hard right. so I won't forget. So a lot is going through my head when I'm doing the walk. And if I'm cooking something that I think of as contemplative cooking, like soup or stew or bread or something, a lot of times things will be going round and round in my head. Mm -hmm. And then um, first thing in the morning, I try um, as much as possible not to write um, since I really hate it so much. Um, and then I run out of things to do and I go to the computer at about nine. So there's procrastination in, the in there. It's not, you so don't much to procrastination. Interesting. I mean, that four mile walk, people are always like, I can't believe you walk every morning. And I, deep down inside, I'm thinking, well, it beats writing. <laughs> so then what time do you typically start writing? When does the procrastination finally peter out? 9.30, 10, something okay. like that. And when I'm working on a novel, it's usually only about um, two or three hours. Okay. Because um, you sort of lose the edge to your imagination after a while. At least I do. It's funny. Somerset mom has this funny quote. Someone asked him the question, do you write? <laughs> do you know this one? Do you write when the spirit moves you or only, you know, at a fixed time? And he goes, I write only when the spirit moves me. And fortunately, it moves me at precisely 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Oh, no, whatever. I thought you were. There's a Somerset mom quote that says there are three rules for writing a novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. Oh, right, yeah. And that one's in your book, right? Yeah, I saw that. You have a, a number of great quotes in the book. So are you at a desk? Do you have a favorite chair? No, no, I'm at a desk. Yeah. I have to I have to be at a desk. I'm not a write anywhere writer. I mm -hmm. have one my my second son is a young adult novelist and he's one of those guys who can like oh, he's in the back of an Uber writing. Oh my God, yeah. on the subway, you know, whatever. He he, he or and also he has no time frame so you know we'll be like hanging out walk we'll walk around the pond and he'll go um I, I, i'll see you in a in, in an hour or so mom i'm going up to my room or what used to be his room and i know he's going up to write and i'm like no no you can only write in a very narrow window of opportunity because other not him he he can do it anywhere anytime oh, not me i'm yeah, very set to i'm music. closer to where you are do you write so it sounds like you mentioned you key keyboarded in are you writing by hand or oh my the computer? god never never I, by hand. when i was doing write for your life the book that i just published about writing i interviewed jenny egan um who's such a wonderful novelist She's great. and i was astonished to discover that she writes by hand, especially since several of her books are so tech specific. But she really, she just, she says that that's, that's how things flow. Mm -hmm. I've been writing on keyboard. Well, I was going to say since 78 when the Times got a computer system, but I was writing on typewriters before then. Isn't that so with whiteout and that sort of this, thing. The synapses that fire for me are my... My fingers on a QWERTY keyboard. That's that's where that's where the ideas go, as opposed to my handwritten notes. And will you uh, back to the just the novel question? Will you edit as you go, or do you write a full first draft and then no, come I'm, back and revise? No, I'm I, Christopher, my my uh, young adult writer son, and I have discussed this endlessly because we his br older brother is a back and fill what we call back and fill writer so he'll write a page and then he goes back 
and fixes that page and tinkers with that page. Christopher and I are what we call run like hell to the end writers. Um, I just I just keep going until I get to the end of a first draft. Mm -hmm. And then I I read the whole thing aloud. um, When do you let someone else read it for the first time? Oh, not until I send it to my editor and my agent. That's it. There. Uh, so you've done a couple turns on it before it goes to the outside no, world. No, I've, 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 I read the first draft aloud because that's where I hear the mistakes and I fix those. And then that first draft goes to my okay. editor and my agent. And then my editor bats it down back to me with her suggestions for the many things I should fix. <laughs> All right. Last process question. I know you're a huge reader. When you're writing a novel, when you're in that phase of putting a few pages on the pile every day, will you read other novels? Yes, but when I'm revising, I only read mysteries. <laughs> that for some reason, for some reason, when I'm doing a first draft, other people's stuff doesn't get in my head. Mm-hmm. But when I'm revising, it can. So that's when I read mysteries. But I, I always hasten to say that that's not to suggest that I'm reading lesser lights because I think this is a golden age of mysteries. So if I'm reading Ian Rankin and Tana French and, and the like, uh, Laura Lippman, then I'm not trading down in any way, shape or form. It's just that literary novels are more likely to get under my skin a little bit and start to show up in my copy. Mm-hmm. I, I totally get what you mean. I, I actually sometimes deviate purely to nonfiction for, for some things, but even that can get under your skin. I wanted to ask you about teaching. You have you teach or have taught writing in the past? Uh, I taught at the journalism school Columbia in the very beginning of my career for about five years mm-hmm. in the basic reporting and writing course. Um, and I really loved it. But um, I think teaching is the hardest job on earth. Yeah. Um, and the most important. And when I had, um, let's see, three kids, two columns, and was trying to write a novel, something had to give, and the something given was teaching. You were teaching writing? Uh, Well, reporting and writing, Mm -hmm. basic reporting and writing. I I find that to be such a daunting thing. You know, if someone said, I wouldn't know what to teach. And I actually have a friend, you may know him as well, but he's you know, written a lot of books, sold tons of books. And he had this funny line. He said, when people come up to me and say, how do you write a novel? He says, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know how to write only the novel I'm writing right now. But when you come into class, what, what would you set as the expectation that a person could learn and how, how do you teach them? With fiction writing, I think it's much more amorphous and difficult. Um, I was I was teaching a basic reporting and writing course, and there's ways that you can teach people to report and who to talk to and what needs to be in the piece. And once they've got the reporting, the way a story is, is put together um, is a little bit set to music. It's completely different with a novel because so much of it, and this is so unhelpful to people who want to write novels, so much of it takes place on a, a, an unconscious level. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was um, working on the opening chapters of a novel that may or may not go, but that I need to send to my editor so that we have a new contract because I've now ripped through the, the last one. 
And, you know, there was this woman and she lives on this house in the street and she has this big houndy looking dog and the dog's name is Burl Lives. Now, did I say to myself, what should the dog's name be? Not for a moment. I mean, literally, I'm writing this sentence and the dog's name is Burl Lives. I'm not entirely sure why, but anyhow, it is. And and when you say that, you sort of make the whole process sound magical in a way that is not helpful because it is like pushing a rock uphill. But that inclination to to live in a world and to tell the story of that world and to do it so that the reader lives in the world too, I think it's kind of baked in yeah. to people. And I, I don't think it's teachable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with that, but many people have maybe baked into different degrees or so, and something, something can be nurtured there, but on your, do you have a preference between fiction and nonfiction? Oh yeah. I mean, look, I, first of all, the great thing about nonfiction, like this book I just did on writing, is on the days when you do feel like you're pu- pushing the rock uphill, you look at your notes. Oh, gosh, I totally forgot about that great interview I did with so-and-so. Let's put that in. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. What about that anecdote that you remembered the other day about when you were writing X, Y, or Z? Let's put that in. You've got stuff You know, you've got wool to knit with, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you're writing a novel, you've got needles in your hands and no wool. Yeah. You know, it's got to it's got to come out from you. Having said that. I find I'm pretty adept after all this time. And if I wasn't shame on me at writing nonfiction and pulling it together, fiction is still always a challenge to me. It's Mm -hmm. always, you know, can you jump this fence? Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into your new book, um, Write for Your Life, which is really a call to action to people to get up or sit down, put your butt in a chair and write. And not necessarily a novel or a, or a column. It could be a letter or a diary. But the key is to compose your thoughts down on the page. And are you sensing this to be a uh, increasingly lost art in our culture? Yeah, but I feel like it boomeranged back to us like so many other things during the pandemic, um, that people who were alone or just with their families felt more of an urge to take note of what was going on around them. But mm-hmm. I think it's particularly important at this moment in time because we're in a, in a society that talks all the time about people being stressed and anxious and not having that sense of connection and communication and data i love data data tells us that writing down your thoughts can help with all of those things and not only that but it can leave a record of yourself behind i mean Mm -hmm. you know who doesn't want to go into a drawer and say oh my gosh here's a whole mess of letters that my father wrote to my mother Eureka, what a find. Mm -hmm. And going onto the hard disk and finding a whole mess of emails that your father wrote to your mother. Oh, it's funny. Is not the same thing. And and this extends to almost everything. I'm working on a nonfiction book now that's set around the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. And I was trying to get some things out of overseas archives. So I found an archivist to help me with some of that. And I gave him the time, time, you know, 
era of what I'm looking for. And he goes, oh, that is the golden age of letters, this sort of 1850 to 1950 range. Like everyone was writing letters. It's all there. And these days, what would, like you say, it'd be a bunch of tweets and texts and emails. And we're not sort of building an archive of our, of our time period. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, one of the great voices in this book is a wonderful doctor at Columbia named Rita Sharon, who um, started a program in medical schools called Narrative Medicine. Doctors need to stop and write so that they can take some of the weight off of their own hearts and souls because it's such a challenging profession. And Rita said to me, oh, that's nonsense. You can print out, you know, these exchanges that people have and you can put them in special folders and everything. And I said, but people don't do that. People just don't do that. And so I feel like we're losing not only this sense of connection among us, but this sense of history. I mean, this is... an important moment in our nation's history. And I don't want it just to be written by the historians. It needs Mm -hmm. to be written by ordinary people. Yeah. You know, this, that reminded that it extends even to my own personal experience with photographs. You know, I used to have the physical photographs and put them up. Now I have these photos and I keep saying to myself, I'm going to put them in a folder and I'm going to do the printing. And now I have 10,000 photos that are likely to disappear into the ether. You know, I've never done, and I'm so overwhelmed by the prospect of actually trying to sort through this stuff and, and print out some actual photos. So, But also you don't really look at them. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm one of those people who has a photo printer and when I get a particularly good grandson or granddaughter picture, I print it and put it in a frame on some chest of drawer somewhere. And inevitably somebody says, oh, you printed right, that yeah. picture of you know it there it's something different than having it than having it on your iPad or on your phone screen. Well tomorrow I'm gonna I'm gonna take that task on. I wanted to ask you about tech as well, technology and social media and the evolution of some of these things. You mentioned in the book the the importance of the world becoming more literate and that a you know a person can now that we are more literate, a person can walk into the town square and when someone gets up on the stump and gives the speech, they can follow along and follow along in the newspapers and go home and have the conversations with the family, which is a critical part of our society. Now, with things like Twitter and other social media, it seems that when you walk into the virtual town square through Twitter and other things, everyone is up on a platform. And not only that, they're up on the platform with like a megaphone and the town square has become this deafening place where you can't hear yourself think in some ways. And uh, not to sound like a fuddy-duddy, but it seems like the loudest people are the least informed people or misinformed people. What, what are your thoughts on social media and technology and, and that, and, you know, in connection with your description of the value of a, a literate world? Don't do Twitter. Never have. Um, Random House tried to get me to start tweeting 10 years ago when Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake came out. I refused to do it. With this book, they insisted that I start an Instagram account. I went kicking and screaming, and then they said the magic words. Um, Jenny Egan and um, who else did they use on me? Tony Dore. All the light we cannot see. Mm-hmm. Jenny Egan and Tony Dore are both on Instagram. And I was like, oh, well, Jenny's doing it. Maybe. I actually find it quite enjoyable, I must say. But 
I don't participate in it the way lots of people do. Um, my daughter. Instagram does seem less toxic to me than Twitter. It's, and it, it can be a force for positivity and connection. But it, of course, any of these things can just be totally. Well, and, and it's, it's very telling that Instagram is less toxic because it's pictures and not words mainly. Um, but my daughter is always saying to me, mommy, people want to see your face. And I keep saying, not going to happen. You know, I, I sort of keep a, a certain distance from it. But uh, I've always been somebody, and I think our country has always been a place that ultimately decides that there's something suspect about the loudest voice, especially coming out of the pandemic. People are looking for someone who feels like them. Um in the best ways and not the worst ways. And that doesn't happen on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen on Facebook. Um, I mean, it, it can't really happen on Instagram, although it does seem like there's a, there's a whole mom core on Instagram that could be helpful to each other. Um, it's more what happens in, in a more amorphous public mm-hmm. space that mm-hmm. that takes place. Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, at the end of the show, we do the, uh, the lightning round questions. But before we get to that, I would be remiss if I did not mention your 2016 induction into the New Jersey Hall of Fame. <laughs> I've got to know what that was about. And was Bon Jovi there or Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> no, but Bill Bradley in, in inducted me. And that was a great honor because, you know, I, I, I know Bill is a great public servant. Some of the people I were with was with knew him as a great basketball player. Mm-hmm. He's just a great man. So that was that was pretty great. <laughs> That's any perks, you know, in the Garden State now for you? Haven't been so far, but you know, I'm not somebody who speeds very much. So uh I haven't given the state police. Is my, there a card you could pull out if that happens I'm in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> um, I think I think there's something in, in Newark Airport that okay. might have my name on it, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well congratulations on that. Thank I you. Uh, I do think that Bon Jovi is in it, and I think Harlan Coben is in it. Oh, Harlan and I, I think were I don't were we the same year, or was he presenting somebody? But Harlan's a good friend, mm-hmm. and and so um, you know, I, I I was happy to I'm happy to share any space with him. Okay, well, congratulations. <laughs> so on to the lightning round. Mm-hmm. Your favorite book as a kid? Little Women. Book you're reading now? Just finished The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. Excellent. Recommend? Okay, good. Favorite book festival? Oh, that's a tough one because there's so many great ones. I think it's probably the one in Washington on the mall. There's something about being in Washington, although the LA Times one is really good too. You know, we met at the, uh, I mean, I guess at I knew Rancho before, Mirage. Rancho Mirage. That, yeah. that is my personal favorite. Is it's, it? it's like, well, they do it in late January, early February when most of the nation is freezing. And you're like, oh, Palm Springs, California sounds pretty good. And you can do some golf and tennis. They take such good care of the writers and the guests there. They, they do. have all of the best writers. I mean, every Pulitzer, national book person, thought leader is there. Beautiful weather, beautiful place. Take good care of you and, and uh, get good people. But, but one of the things that's really inspiring is there are great. Have you ever done the National Writers Series in Traverse City, Michigan? No. Well, first time I get invited, I'm like, Traverse City, Michigan? I ask Harlan. And he says... You have to go. And as soon as I got there, in terms of the audience, the people running it, 
it was thrilling. It was so supportive of writers. And mm. I found that all over the country. There are really great writers festivals. Yeah. It's fun. It's fun to see people are still that engaged with yep. the novel and, and best concert you've ever been to. <laughs> I think I was maybe 23 or 24 years old when I saw Meatloaf in oh a little gosh. club in New Jersey. And it was paradise by the dashboard light. It was really great. Uh, and future Hall of Famer there with you. So um, for this next question, just just about even the Pulitzer winners like yourself tend to have a clunker of an answer early on for this next question. Your least attended book event. Oh, this is so easy. I can't tell you. I think it was the second book. So when I was a columnist at the Times, I had big saturation in some areas. I also ran in the Chicago Tribune. Um, I ran in the Detroit Free Press, a bunch of other um, papers. But I tended not to run down south very much. And so people didn't know me down there. I was doing a bookstore event at I think it was a big box store in Dallas. I'm sitting behind the table with piles and piles of my books. Two people come, read the flap copy, close the book and put it back down and walk on. And finally, a man walks up and leans in. And I think finally, and he says, do you know where maps are? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> let me see if I can get somebody to help you. I don't think I sold a single book. And you know what? I think something like that 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 humbles you mm -hmm. is really good for a writer every once in a while it's true and every writer who has made it can look back on it and laugh and cherish that moment a little bit absolutely yeah. favorite few tv shows you've watched lately that you would recommend to listeners bad sisters on apple tv no question about it um brilliant writing brilliant actor actors five irish sisters one of whom is married to uh, a husband they all refer to as the prick and is so terrible that the other four decide that they're going to kill him and all 10 episodes are their attempts um to kill him and it just is it's just beyond anything. Um, I haven't gotten back to Yellowstone yet. I will. My motto is be a Beth, not a Karen. Um, <laughs> That's good. Well, on that note, last question is one piece of good advice for the listeners. And while you're thinking of that, I'll, I'll interject, if I may, with mine, which is people should go out and buy A Short Guide to a Happy Life by Anna Quinlan and read it over. But you, you can't steal mine, which I just stole from you. One piece of good advice. Look around. Really look around. There comes a moment, and it comes too soon. Usually when we're maybe 12, 13, 14, when we stop seeing what's around us. We stop seeing the people we love. We stop seeing the natural world around us. Um, we just stop seeing. So I would say. That's it. Why? Because we're in a busy and in a rush and we need to slow down? I, I think things get dulled after a while. Hmm. You know, I mean, all you have to do to realize how important it is, is watch a four-year-old. I mean, when you watch a four-year-old looking at an anthill, 
you suddenly see an anthill in a way you haven't since you were four years old. And then the sense is dull. And I think one of the ways to understand what a what a privilege it is to be alive, because it really is, um, is to really look at the world. Oh, I love that. That's great advice. Anna, what a pleasure. Thank you for coming in. Thanks. And by the way, this drink was really good. It's even better than the version of it in my, in my restaurant. Well, I'm happy. You know, I didn't know if it was anything like what you would expect, but it's, no, it's uh, we really just sort good. of did a wing job. Well, thank you again. Great Thanks. to see you again. Thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.